Taking that agile paradigm and applying it not only to how we develop software, but in my domain, how we build teams, it becomes very powerful. Hi, I'm Duncan Pryor, digital transformation consultant and host of the Making Things Work podcast. I love looking for innovative and creative ways to make work better so that we can get the balance right in our lives and have seen how leadership and teams can accomplish that. In this podcast series, we meet a group of executive leaders to understand what leadership means to them and their approach to delivering transformation and change in the workplace so that teams achieve great things and people see their careers flourish. Today we're talking to Jonathan Midgley, who's recently joined New Day as their CTO. Jonathan's background is in building and leading high-performing global technology teams in both startup and digital transformation situations. Uh, welcome, Jonathan. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. What can you share with us about your plans at New Day, having just joined the organization? Well, it's all very fresh to me, three months in. New Day is a fairly mature niche financial services business. It's a 20-year-old business, so it is mature. And as the business has grown, which has been fairly aggressive, it's a large business, very profitable business. The realization has been made that it could pivot or should pivot into being a technology business. And that's a journey that I'm familiar with, having been on that journey recently at Trainline. Yes. And I saw in the most recent annual statement that digital investment is right front and center in the CEO's statement. Absolutely. We're all about investing in digital and really historically New Day, like many such businesses, has outsourced a significant portion of its engineering capability, its product capability. And what we're now doing is bringing all of that in-house. So we now have a team of around about 120 in-house engineers, largely based out of central London, spreading further afield. And we're about building a best-of-class engineering team to take us on that journey. The outsourcing decision was that to do with getting teams to support and maintain, develop existing administration systems, but now you really want to put technology right at the center of the business. It's a very typical journey for a scaling business within a niche which is not necessarily technology-led. The expertise in the leadership team isn't around technology, so they tend to rely on third parties. I've seen this many times, and as that journey continues, the third parties become more and more powerful because they hold a grip on the IP that's been developed, but also the ability of the company to leverage that IP and move quickly towards commercial goals is compromised because they don't have sufficient control because they've outsourced everything. So New Day have been on a journey of realization where ultimately the leadership team have realized that, look, what we're building here is very powerful and we need to take back ownership, control of it, make sure that what we're building really is gold standard, best of class. And it gives us the ability then to pivot and move using agile approaches to ensure that we're constantly meeting our both short-term and long-term commercial goals. So when you come into the organization, and you've done this before, you set up software development across a number of different countries. And can you tell us a bit about how you go about doing that? I'd love to tell you why, first of all. Yes, um, okay. I'll happily share some of the how. So why is largely driven by a number of factors. I'm based in central London, and I typically work with organizations in central London, and we have a finite resource pool. Getting access to C-sharp engineers is typically 
fairly easy, but there are other niche technologies, which is very hard to attract and retain great engineering resource. So I started looking at other locations and typically we look at Eastern Europe. I found after testing Eastern Europe that it wasn't massively appealing. There were some great software engineering capabilities and existing organizations over there. What I learned is that in order to get teams that are distributed internationally to work really well together, they had to build a human connection. So it's about people, much more than technology. And I need people to want to travel to those locations. I did some experiments and looked at Southern Europe rather than Eastern Europe and set up some semi-captive offshore teams in places like Spain and Portugal. And it worked out fabulously because my engineers from London and the rest of the UK were really motivated to go and visit these places. They built great relationships with the teams because they wanted to spend time there. And I found places with large pools of engineers that were available. So it played out very well indeed. The how is really about getting support internally within the business. So selling that vision into the leadership team instead of board into the investors as to why this is a sensible thing to do. Once I've garnered that support, then it's about finding somebody in a location to seed that team. And I've been very lucky that I've made some great contacts in various locations and those contacts have played out very well and acted as the beginning of the team. And I found if that person has the right behaviors, has the right communication style, the right character traits that they can support in building the beginnings of that team. And I spend a lot of time myself personally engaging with that individual and with those early recruits involved in the recruitment cycle, making sure that people are a really great cultural fit. I find to be much more important than a technology fit or a skills fit. It's about humans and those human interactions. And once I've got the beginnings of that team there, it's like starting an engine. You know, once I've got the thing started, I can gradually step away from it. And the other key learning for me is to ensure that whenever I have a team in a different geographic location, at Trainline, for example, I had teams in Paris, in Portugal, in India, and various other places. I never give a team a complete piece of work to do. I always break the teams up across geographic locations. So I'll have people in Paris working with people in London and India. And that then creates a really powerful and strong dynamic that straight away, all of these disparate individuals start to feel like one big team, which is really healthy. So it's quite a different way of looking at that challenge rather than traditional outsourcing approach yeah. where it's more to do with, say, the price. You were thinking about it completely differently and turning it on its head so that the geographic boundaries just become an absolute positive and they're completely intrinsic to what's going on. You're absolutely right. And price is, of course, a factor, but availability of resources yeah. is another really important factor. The team has to work. One of my mantras is one team. At Trainline, we grew the team to 450, which is huge, in order to scale out the business and scale out the platform. My goal was to have those 450 people feel like one team, regardless of where they were. This has played out super well during the pandemic because during the pandemic, of course, we're all sitting in our homes or in places nearby and we can't connect. So everybody is distributed. So the model has allowed us to thrive in these very unusual circumstances. Is it literally as simple as that? I've learned a huge amount, as with everything, made a ton of mistakes and then made changes. One of the major learnings about getting distributed teams to work effectively, which will sound very obvious when I say it. It's about optimizing for remote engagement. So typically in an office environment, we optimize for face-to-face -face engagement. So it's those 
chats around the water cooler or, hey, there's Jonathan walking past my desk. I'll chat to him about the thing, right? When that happens, all of those remote folk miss out on that conversation. So if we optimize for remote engagement, that means that we ensure that everything is in some kind of backlog management system rather than in a conversation, that when conversations do happen, we push them online, we'll push them onto a Teams chat or onto a Skype chat or whatever to ensure that all the remote folk can be involved as appropriate. We also did things like having these kind of mobile VC setups that can be wheeled around the office. When a team in London are working with a team in Bangalore and a team in Portugal, each of them can have one of these mobile setups with a camera and a screen. So they feel like they've got this constant interaction or this portal into the rest of the team. You're talking about using the agile mindset at a level above getting the software development done, just to do with the way you think about and make mistakes and learn quickly in the way that the team is set up in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. One of my mantras is agile everything. I prioritize my day based on a backlog of tickets. And I deeply believe we should test, we should iterate, we should fail, and we should learn and with everything we do. Can we talk a bit about the next level when you're trying to use techniques such as BDD and continuous integration, how you then go about getting that going within the team when you really start delivering once you've started putting the teams together? Solving the introduction of any technique in an organization really comes with leaders walking the walk as well as talking the talk. So a big learning for me, something that sharpened my focus on during my time at Trainline, my boss there was fantastic and a really great sharer of his experiences. It's about really building a bottom-up approach to solving problems. So whenever I introduce anything, you know, it might be continuous integration, right? So it's about mm -hmm. ensuring that the team have the tools and support they need in order to do that and allowing them the freedom to develop solutions to the problems themselves and just to give them the support that they need to deliver on that. There's an opposite model, which is very autocratic, and that would be about yeah. me saying to them, hey, here's how you're going to do this. Here's the tools that you're going to use. Here's the approach. Here's the patterns, et cetera. What I find is if I let the teams find their way, they develop this very close relationship with their solution, and it becomes a very powerful relationship, which scales very well. And an autocratic approach, a top-down approach, scales much less well. There's the non-technical stakeholders within the organization. How do you bring them into the fold so that they understand and see the merits of the techniques? It's a great question. I have a few strategies. I would say one word underpins it all, which is transparency. I'm a great believer in OKRs, OKRs being objectives and key results. So each team has an objective or a set of objectives. And if we draw on a pretty simple example, we could say that let's imagine a web team is working on increasing conversion across the funnel from landing page to checkout. And their goal is to increase conversion by 10%. That's their measurable objective. It's clearly defined. And they have a bunch of KPIs that help to drive them towards that objective. And those KPIs can be things that help to demonstrate progress. So look, we've increased conversion between these two pages by 1% this sprint. Or they could also be what I call guardrail KPIs, which might be things that protect the engineering and the effectiveness of the product. So it might be that whilst moving in this direction, we can't reduce page load time by more than 100 milliseconds, for example. So we have a bunch of KPIs that come together that protect the overall product, but also allow the team to drive towards their objective. And by surfacing all of these very transparently in a set of dashboards, 
I love the concept of democratization of data. So all data is available to all people. That means that it's very easy for me to have those conversations with the stakeholders because they can see the results. They can see the trajectory of conversion across the funnel. They can see the KPIs. They can see them coming to life in the dashboards. And then we really help to take them on the journey by doing regular ceremonies, as they're known in the agile worlds, like show and tells, regular show and tells literally every week, showing anybody who'll come along exactly what the teams have achieved, exactly where they're up to on their objective journey what their KPIs look like, and also deep involvement with the team. It's really important that the team, when we talk about team, is not just a team of software engineers. That creates instantly, in my experience, an us and them type culture. The team has to be all of the people who are involved in making the product. Of course, that's software engineers, but it's also product owners. It's also quality folk, DevOps folk, infrastructure folk, maybe a business stakeholder, et cetera, et cetera. So they all come together to form the team. So there's that level of understanding through transparency and all of the ceremonies that helps to solve that problem. And in one of my previous podcasts, we talked about how the development team at Netflix doesn't fit into the stereotype that people might imagine. Because when you think of everyone as being very young geniuses, but actually at Netflix, the average age of a developer is over 40. Have you faced similar types of situations and possible misconceptions when you're building out these teams? Well, as a young genius myself, I've always found that to be a problem. But um, <laughs> joking aside, <laughs> there are lots of stereotypes in software engineering. That is changing. And I proactively take an interest in addressing those stereotypes. There's some really awful ones at play. It's very hard to encourage awesome female engineers into the organization. That's a constant challenge. Focusing on diversity and encouraging a diverse range of folks to join. Another classic is there's often a stereotype around education. And in my experience, the best software engineers are not always folk who have a computer science degree or similar. I've worked with some fabulous engineers who come from very different backgrounds. There's one that comes to mind who had almost no education at all, left school when he was 16, self-taught and just fantastic. I guess it takes people in a different direction and adds that breadth of diversity to a team, which I think is absolutely fantastic. How do you go about that then when you're trying to get that diversity into the team? It's hard, is the first point. We focus on it. So we focus on community engagement. I can't talk too much to my experience at New Day because I've only just started a train line for sure. We really focused on engaging with the community. So for example, we worked with Code First Girls. We ran lots of Code First Girls events at Trainline and ensured that that engagement was a long-term engagement. So we were focused on not only supporting the community, facilitating talks and running talks, but also running events to help girls who maybe don't have access to education or opportunity to come and work at Trainline and to see what that's like and to engage with other software engineers. And really just to support the community is really the first major step, I think. To pick up on what you were talking about before, where your starting point is the people rather than focusing on the C-sharp aspect of it, for example. You were zooming in on the person as a human being to start with. It's so true. I've learned the hard way myself that if you attract awesome humans into your organization, then you will build incredible teams. And when I say awesome humans, you know, I'm looking for people who are really passionate about what they do, people who are great communicators, people who are natural coaches, sharers of their passion. I guess software engineering skill is secondary to that, but clearly 
incredibly important. But the reason I say it yep. secondary is that I try very hard to build a culture of sharing and learning in my organizations. And I do that by encouraging teams to share what they do, to coach lots of pairing so that you're constantly fostering a culture of learning and sharing across the organization, running things like code dojos, brown bags, sessions where people can come and talk about whatever they're passionate about and share that passion. And that really creates a very unusual environment and at Trainline, it paid dividends. So can we talk a bit about how you bring about transformation within a more mature organization where you're more Rather than building something from scratch, you're managing an existing situation and bringing about transformation. That's my favorite topic, actually. We call it greenfield and brownfield. It's very unusual, actually, that we get a compelling greenfield opportunity. Tends to be a startup or a niche in a larger organization. But typically, software engineers are offered brownfield work. And by brownfield, I mean, look, there's a thing here that's been built by somebody else or another team. We need your help to solve a problem or to extend it. And that's what I love to do. And I do that at scale. So I love going into organizations and solving those problems. And I've done so at scale in my three previous roles, notably at Euromoney and at Trainline. And you touched on something earlier that I think is at the center of how I go about doing that. And that's agile. So start small, start driving some change and demonstrating value very quickly. And once you can show to a group of stakeholders, be they a board, be they investors, be their management team or whatever, that you can start demonstrating the effectiveness of the change, you start to win hearts and minds and it starts to snowball very quickly. So that's really the first and most important step. And the second piece, again, lines up with something we've already touched on, and that's taking that approach bottom up. So once you start to win the hearts and minds, you've got to focus on the grassroots. I can't join an organization and say, you need to do this. You need to work in this way. It's about really encouraging the teams to take ownership, encouraging them to focus on what good looks like, to discuss it, to be objective about it. We as a team believe that good looks like us delivering on our sprint commitments, us releasing maybe five times a day into prod so that we're constantly releasing value to our customers, etc. And once we can start to light those sparks across the grassroots of the organization, and we're constantly showing that value to the senior stakeholders, you start to join those two up and great things start to happen. And in this situation, you're very much living with the existing systems and data so that you're not building a new team. Yeah, absolutely. Look, all software is equal in my eyes. And, um, yes, that's the, a very the, way of putting it. The concept of legacy is really an anti-pattern. Any software, once the code has been written, is really legacy. We work in a commercial environment. This software drives value and is important. So it's super interesting. I've joined large organizations previously, and their perception is, look, we've got a legacy problem. We need your help fixing this. But actually, if you approach the software that exists in the right way, and you help to transition that software so it can work in a, maybe a more modern microservice environment, for example, you can really leverage the value in that existing software very effectively. And the worst thing that can happen in my experience is that you have to look at that thing that's been built and you have to say, okay, look, we can't work with this. And we have to build it again because then the value disappears and a significant investment is required. The right way to do it is to constantly drip feed investment into your software. It sounds really obvious, but if you leave a piece of software, a piece of code to age, the longer you leave it, the nearer it becomes to that dreaded phase of legacy and it becomes harder and harder to leverage it in a modern environment. 
We need to continually maintain, continually drip investment, continually release it into prod. If all we do is just make the code more readable, release it into prod, that's a great thing. Because what we've done there is somebody has touched the software, a human has interacted with it, we've made a small improvement to it, and we've proved that our release pipeline and release processes are working, and a new version has gone into prod and all is well, then we've achieved something important. That leads me on to talking about the data. And I saw in a recent interview that you talked about how you used the data within the organization that it already possessed in order to help customers and to add value to customers. Do you see this as an aspect that all digital transformations will go through in the future? I do. I think it's critical. I think some of your listeners might not like the following statement, but the data, in my opinion, is much more important than the software. The data should, and I hope, could exist forever. I love Google's approach, which is that they capture every single data point. We reached a tipping point some years ago where storage became so cheap that there's no reason not to store all the things. At Trainline, we went on a journey. We created a huge data lake, which was completely agnostic. We tagged the data. We stored it in a way that meant that it was very cheap to store, but relatively easy to access. And what we found was that actually some of that data that we wouldn't even have thought about maybe two, three, four years ago suddenly became incredibly valuable. So my advice is to keep hold of all the data. The worst thing an organization can do is to throw that data away. This data was pulled out of... Oracle databases, SQL Server databases to create this data lake. Is that how you went about it? That's exactly right. That's an important step. What we typically find in mature organizations is that data lives in many, many locations. And that could be somebody's laptop, could be an access database or a spreadsheet. It could be a SQL Server database or an Oracle database or whatever. Some of these databases are very old. Some of them have been maintained with bits of sticking plaster and old cereal boxes just to keep them going. If we can secure some investment to put that data into a place where we standardize the storage mechanisms and concepts of a data lake is a strong one. We used to consider this stuff data warehouses, but the world has moved on a little bit. Technology has matured and the ability to store this data is very cheap. Then you've got this mass of data that you can then leverage. And that's a very powerful thing. A new day, as with Trainline, you're going for a situation where rather than processing credit card administration for business partners, you're really going to be helping people and their finances on a much more deeper fundamental level than possibly the company was doing in the past. That's our mission, absolutely. Yeah. You know, we believe that credit can be a force for good. Of course, credit can be problematic, and our job is to help people manage credit effectively. And it's a really fascinating space. I've been a fintech hobbyist for many years, observing organizations like Starling and Tandem and Monzo, and I've got to know some of the senior technical folk in those orgs pretty well. And it's always been super interesting for me. And what their mission has been is been to transform that space as challenges and to really focus on the customer. And at New Day, that's what we're doing. And I think it's really powerful because credit, when it's misused, can be obviously very problematic. But we have data and tools available to us that can help customers manage their credit effectively and use it as a powerful force. Yeah, that's a really profound step for the organization. Yeah, it's exciting. What's the one thing you would like to leave us with today, particularly in the area of digital transformation? It's that phrase that I mentioned earlier, which is agile everything. So you touched on it, which is that agile is not just about delivering software. There's a whole school of thought around agile leadership now across organizations. 
And it's really exciting. I certainly saw it happen at Trainline and I'm seeing it start to happen at New Day is that the organization starts to realize that actually this agile approach to delivering things is really powerful and can be leveraged across the whole organization. Taking that agile paradigm and applying it not only to how we develop software, but in my domain, how we build teams, how we solve budgetary problems, how we solve people problems, it becomes very powerful. So Agile has really transformed the way we deliver software. Look at anything from your phone now through your home computer to your car. All of these products are delivered using Agile engineering techniques, using BDD, using continuous integration and delivery. And it's really transformed maybe not only software engineering, but the world as we know it. Terrific. Well, thanks very much for meeting us today, Jonathan. And what's the best way that we can keep in contact with you or reach out to you if we wanted to? Oh, the best way is probably LinkedIn, actually. I love LinkedIn. It's a great place to meet like-minded folk. And I try to post there whenever I've got anything interesting to say. So LinkedIn's the place. Well, thanks very much, Jonathan. That's been really, really interesting. My absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. This podcast series is produced in association with BML Digital and produced by Catherine Cunning and Mark Gardner at Oxford Sound Studios, Oxfordshire, UK. For more information, please visit bmldigital.com.